0: On the dallas opera network you're listening to opera box score Uh,
1: let's get ready to rumble wherever you are however you're listening it's opera box score i'm your host george cedarquist joined on america's talk radio show about opera by oliver camacho matt cummings weston williams and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, this week, May seventeenth, 1939, the United States' first televised sporting event was a college baseball game between the Columbia Lions and the Princeton Tigers. It was broadcast by NBC. In April 2020, the first Zoom opera ushered in a new era of pandemic entertainment. So how far has the art of Form of opera as film changed over the last year, how will it change opera altogether? Well, your OBS team has screened a few recent examples of the evolution of this new musical language to find out what the present looks like and what the future might hold. Plus, two-minute drill, move over Q Anon Shaman. There's a new set of horns at the Capitol. So great to have this team back together again. I, I will say it was nice and quiet around here, Oliver. It was just you and me last week. Mm, I know. Reminded just, you of the days
2: uh, before
3: kids. Very <laughs> dare you, sir. Uh,
2: luckily, it wasn't too quiet with uh, George busting out the trumpet. It was, am- it was beautiful. Yeah, that's,
4: George. That's what happens. He gets nervous when we're alone sometimes. He's
1: like, uh, I'm going to play my trumpet. <laughs> We've all been there. had oh. a dollar for every
3: time. <laughs> uh Oliver
1: Oliver's eyes glued to uh, Roland Garros this week.
4: Yeah, my sleep schedule is so messed up, but I have to say they're making it much easier for me by getting rid of the players I care about the most. Um Roger Federer as we talked about last week, he actually just said, "You know what? I've had enough of this. I'm going to leave um giving the gorgeous Matteo Berrettini a walkover. I'm happy to look at Berrettini anytime. Uh, And Tsitsipas is advancing very well, but it's still pretty clear that it'll be a showdown between Nadal and Djokovic if everything holds the way they would. But uh, sad about Naomi Osaka and sad about Serena Williams not having good form at her last match. So the women's draw is a real mess right now.
1: I'm going to come back to Naomi Osaka in a second. Matt Cummings, you never quit, just like Simone Biles.
2: You know it does quit, though, is Zoom in <laughs> this moment.
1: Yes. that is true. Thank you, Weston, for saving we, we, You can edit this. Uh, Matt, you <laughs> no, are frozen.
4: No, leave
3: it. It's genius.
1: I love <laughs> this. <laughs> Matt Cummings, your Zoom might quit, but you never quit, and Simone Biles never quits.
0: <laughs> She's physically incapable of quitting. Olympics watch is now Simone Biles watch twenty four seven. Over this past weekend, she won her seventh consecutive uh, U.S. Championships, Jesus. doing a-, a floor pass that included not one but two tumbling passes named yes. after her that no one else is capable of doing. <laughs> yes. um, we are going to put on our on our website the the slow mo videos that USA Today published of her routines because they are poetry in motion. You could take dictation off of these gymnastics routines.
1: That's on operaboxcore.com. Weston Williams, Ashley Hardgrave with us as well. Ashley, you want to talk about Naomi Osaka. Let me set this up, and I'm going to let you knock it down. So the story, about a week old at this point, right? She withdraws from the French Open with concerns of uh, uh, mental health, really uh, quoting that, like, when the press attacks her, essentially, and gets in her face, that is something that triggers her. And quite frankly, who could blame her? In other words, if you came off the operatic stage and someone shoved a mic into your face and was like, hey, look, you know, you've know, you really struggled with this role over the past few years. Honestly, most people don't think you can hit those high notes. Why is that? Like, who wants to have to endure that? I, they, these rules are across the board for me for sports and for opera. Ashley,
3: Absolutely. It would also be even to put an even finer point on it. If you're walking out the stage, door, someone comes up to you and it's like, "Hey, George Cedarquist, opera news. Sound like you had some real trouble with that B flat. How exactly are you going to change your approach tomorrow when you hit the money <laughs> money note and the money shot in the in next week's Lucia? Thoughts? You know, like just really hammer it in. Yeah. What I love about Naomi is that she's from this younger generation who has been given enough agency to like fight for themselves. And so the the old guard is cranky. Anybody who has ever taken advocacy in their own behavioral health is like, yes, more power to you. The Williams sisters support her. And more importantly, the meditation app Calm supports her. Uh, They announced via Twitter to support Osaka's decision to prioritize her mental health. They are donating 15 grand to L'Oreal Sport, which is a French organization that they say does incredible work in mental health spaces to transform the lives of young people through the power of sport. However, they also say this is bigger than any individual player. Calm will also pay the fines for players opting out of the 2021 Grand Slam media appearances for mental health reasons, and they will match the fine with a fifteen mm. thousand dollar donation <laughs> to that sporting organization. Oh,
1: Money where your mouth is. I love it. Let's talk some opera. Chalk Talk on Opera
3: Box Score. Washington Post, Michael Andrew Broder recently published an article with the notion. If classical music keeps one thing from the pandemic, let it be the opera short. The harvest of unlikely hybrids between music video and opera have sustained many a fan's interest during the pandemic, and in plenty of cases, they've reached more ears and eyeballs than a previous traditional opera production could have. And while it's no substitute for an in-house experience, opera on film has a budding promise to engage both artists and audience as we move into the next normal. We'll chat today about the evolutions of this new musical language, and our team is going to take a dive into a few modern offerings so we can see what nuggets are out there for the consumption. Uh, this isn't exactly a new notion of opera on film, but we've definitely seen an evolution over, uh, you know, this, this time that we've been in. But let's take it way back. Weston, let's yeah. talk about the very early history of the notion of opera on film.
2: Well, Ashley, did you know that the first opera on film, and I use some quotes here, uh, because it was only a two-minute film, which means I think there were probably some cuts. It was an 1898 <laughs> film of uh, uh, Donizetti's La Fille du Régiment, which I imagine probably missed out on certain important bits. But um, what like, do I know? nine high seas. <laughs> yeah, they only had time for <laughs> one, and they had to, like, keep going. Um, but and also it was a silent film, so I feel like there might have been a little bit of a, a missing element there as well. Um, but you, pretty soon you, you do see opera sort of uh, adapting to this film. Format. you have a lot of the early opera singers you know became movie stars in their own right like you know Geraldine Farrar Geraldine and, Farrar
0: uh, did a, yeah they did like a the final scene from Carmen as a silent movie mm-hmm. in like the teens 1916ish
2: but it wasn't until uh, 1931 that you get your first full f- version of an opera on film and that was a uh, Palyaçi in 1931 um and and like uh you know radio before it and um and other you know technological innovations it's really changed how we listen to music how we perceive theater and all those sorts of things you, you you see a jump in popularity for example of arias in a certain range that are more friendly for like victrolas of the era you know uh operas that are more easily condensable into two minutes like apparently lafayette du régiment uh, <laughs> <laughs> um and but as time goes on and technology gets a little bit better the industry adapts um there's more people who are uh who are really doing things in a more in a more full way there's less changing around how we do it you get to the point where you have normal, it's pretty normal to have archival recordings. Think of, like, the the, uh, the all the PBS productions that you would have seen back in the 80s and 90s. Great uh,
1: performances, right?
3: right exactly. The they were great.
2: And then, of course, the gold standard for at least a while was the Met live in HD, where you'd go to the movie theater and you just see, like, you know, the entire thing uh, in front of you. And, and those, I, I think, are... Oh, go ahead, Matt. Well,
0: in contrast to both of those, which are filmed performances of live opera, you also have opera movies being made. like Jean-Pierre Ponel made a pretty famous movie of Marriage of Figaro that stars Kiri Takanoa and that's set like at this lush European estate there's definitely a scene that takes place in a rowboat I think it's during Dove Sono (laughs) like the kind of stuff that you're just not able to do on stage because of the limitations of physical space and time.
1: Who could forget Mark Hamill in that animated uh, feature film? (laughs) Another prime (laughs) example. Uh,
4: You know it was a pretty uh Thorough history, but don't forget the important 1945 microphonies episode of the Three Stooges, uh, which features, oh, yes. which classic. features uh, voices of spring, sung by I mean the Johann Strauss Jr. piece and um, the sextet from Lucia. They called it back then the sextet from Lucy,
0: and they, or, the, <laughs> or the Marx
2: Brothers' Night at the Opera. Yes, uh, another classic. Well, but the I, nice I think,
3: thing, oh go ahead. Sorry. One I more just question. think I just want to point out that uh,
2: one of the things that you uh, that I've seen in my in just in my lifetime, my my young young lifetime, uh, I remember like the the early days of like live in HD and uh, the way in like the first couple of years, the way the singers were acting was still very broad, still very much to the back of the house. And now if you go see a live in HD that was produced, well, still prior to the pandemic, but more recently it's all in all the direction is very um, filmic, very TV central. And I've and you can see this over one, just one type of performance that's still on stage. And one thing that I think, is really interesting about the pandemic is that it's really accelerated that kind of evolution. I think that's what we're gonna be talking about today.
3: Yeah, and let's talk about that notion. You know, the, the idea of opera on film, one of the things that has been so great about it is it's made opera a little bit more portable. It's been able to distribute the notion and the presentation of opera to people and ears and eyeballs that couldn't get to the live theaters. Enter March, 2020, nobody could get to a theater. And so the entire industry had to pivot. George, let's talk a little bit about what happened in the pandemic.
1: Well, I mean, it's changed so, so quickly, right? If you think back to March 2020, it literally took approximately 48 hours for the markets <laughs> to be entirely saturated with Zoom <laughs> operas. Or
0: at least it felt that way.
1: Now, here's, here's the thing, right? Is that Essentially, that period of opera on film, the Zoom opera, was essentially a form of art therapy. And look, art therapy has value, it has meaning, it has a place, but we very quickly moved through that stage into live streams of concerts, re-releasing of archival recordings, which were not available prior to that. But now now we're really in the meat of what this art form is.
3: That is correct. So basically what we're going to do from here is we're going to talk about the evolution of how all of this came through. So we start with kind of the, the easiest ways to intro ourselves into this art form on film, and then we see how quickly things move and bend and shift and go into whatever this new, you know, next normal is going to be. So let's start with sort of the quickest transition in that's very apropos of the time. Matt, what do you have for us?
0: So put yourselves back in the mental space where you were in October 2020 when things were, you know, starting to go from kind of bad to really bad. Uh, In the middle of all of this, Pittsburgh Opera put put on these hybrid performances of Così Fan Tutte, uh, and they featured a chamber orchestra of 17 pieces, the six singers playing the principal roles, and they did actually both live stream this performance and have an audience of 50 members, and the stream was free mm-hmm. for everyone regardless of whether you had a ticket or not. Um, some of the... Ha. Some of the, their pandemic strategies were that everyone was masked, including the singers, and we'll come back to that. Um, everyone that is except for the brass and wind players. they, they really couldn't do that. Um, they cut the show down to 90 minutes, did it with no intermission, and this was kind of a, uh, a th- this was a really strong offering of a hybrid opera. And the way that they made their situation work was they took the resident artists who were working with op- with a uh, Pittsburgh opera for 2020, cast them as the principals instead of covers, and then they set the show during World War One and the 1918 flu pandemic. So all of this, oh, not only brilliant. was everyone wearing masks, but it was like, die- they were diegetically wearing masks. There was a reason why it was happening, and they incorporated it into the staging um, instead of... The Fiordiligi and Dorabella being rich women at their estate. They said it as were they were workers in a munitions factory, and that is another way of using the space because Pittsburgh Opera has a black box theater inside of their HQ, mm. and that HQ used to be a Westinghouse air brake factory. So that kind of oh, like wow. industrial vibe, it's there. Like they're they're building on something that that already exists and making the most of their opportunity. Uh, so and. I would say that is, those were like the main areas of innovation, like beyond the new setting, beyond the safety measures. It was a fair, you know, know, it's a cozy, it's a cut cozy. You've (laughs) seen many of these stage shapes before. Um, That's a lot of energy to put into figuring out how to do an opera at all. And it, it was mostly very successful. And in particular, a lot of the ways that they And especially any time that they went back to the well of their concept and, like, really leaned in is where I think this show, like, absolutely works. Uh, For instance, in the Act 1 finale, when Despina comes in dressed as the doctor, uh, instead of just wearing a normal mask, they had her wear one of the uh, Tzani plague masks. Uh, And (laughs) and she did the the Voce di Strega, that witch voice that that Despina has to do when she's listing all of her crazy fake remedies. Uh, And... They added in a little bit of funny business with the magnet because all of the settings they, they had like World War One cots and these hospital screens, so the magnet gets stuck to the hospital <laughs> screen, and uh, <laughs> Véronique Few who played just been like really sells it. It's so funny that use of prop and design, you know, it made it feel that those are the parts where it most felt like watching a live performance again, where you're where you weren't so aware that you're sitting at home watching a live stream because it felt fully like intentional and integrated into the show. Uh, And one area of the show that I think can be really difficult to stage is uh, at the very, very end of the act one finale, when there's all these kind of like split screens and a side action going on. They use the hospital screens to like physically differentiate the different singers from each other so that you were, you know, bending around to whisper to Mm. each other. And it made that it made the music feel physical. Uh, So we are going to I'm going to we're going to drop in a clip of that moment right here. (laughs)
4: I'm not getting ¡No lo
0: So, it, you know, the nonsense goes on because it is cozy and there's always a little bit more nonsense to happen. Uh, but then closer to the end of the opera, at the end of Act 2, another moment that really struck me was the Ferrando-Fioriligi duet when she's about to run off to war and, like, put on that uniform. Normally, it's, like, a very silly Italian-looking uniform. So to have a World War I uniform standing yeah. behind her, that's, like, an image that's mm-hmm. very that, – that really carries a lot more weight and that it's is powerful. felt yeah. differently in the public – uh in the like collective memory of the of the audience, so that duet had like a lot more frisson than i normally than, than than a normal staging I would say, and that kinda it the specter of the uniform like hangs behind her like a memento mori and it's a whole plague going on. Uh, and that kind of effective use of close-up and framing of the camera angles, like, we expect that from the Met live in HD. They've got millions invested in this. This is a smaller opera company doing this for the very first time under incredibly challenging cir- circumstances, and they really did deliver. Uh, and that kind of embracing limitation rather than just apologizing and really working with the costumes, the costume designer, uh, uh, Jason Bray, and the stage director, Crystal Mannick, and... Uh, just overcoming these obstacles and integrating them into a show, uh, re- it kind of represents the midpoint of a couple different strategies, and it, you know, it it's a good, it's a really good start, I have to say.
3: Absolutely, you know. So we go from you know something that is you know we we filmed a show with masks, and it's sort of like the Met HD, but it's kind of like you're in the theater. But also not then we're moving to another example uh, i believe it's going to come from oliver where we take the things that are on the stage we shift them to the camera there's not a lot of big changes or surprises but it's still very well done oliver let's talk yeah, about
4: it i mean friends of the show just in full disclosure there um opera atelier their brand is baroque opera mostly Handel, but also um early mozart and uh french baroque opera is their specialty uh their brand is you know Baroque opera with a fantastic band. They have Tafel Music, uh, the Baroque Orchestra, as their in house orchestra. Uh, And working with a company of singers who are regulars and who understand the style and intention of the artistic directors, uh, Marshall Pinkowski and Jeanette Lajeunesse Zing. Jeanette Zing is a dancer, she's the choreographer, and Marshall Pinkowski is the stage director. And they have co-directed uh, and choreographed every show that Opera Tilly has ever performed. And there is definitely, when you see one Opera Tilly show show, maybe two, you understand exactly what the aesthetic of this company is. It's like beautifully <laughs> it's costumed. gorgeous. Yeah, it it's like you know, yeah. <laughs> such a feast for the eyes. It's beautiful art on the stage. Um, everybody looks like they could be a dancer, for better or for worse. Uh, and it is Baroque in that everything has gesture and movement and all of the music is punctuated, you know. Uh, it might be sort of over the top, and they're always playing to the last seat in the theater. Um, so I was interested to see how this could translate to video. And their season this year was supposed to be Magic Flute, Diodoninius, and a Handel Oratorio, The Resurrection, which is about, you know, Easter and the last days that were, I guess, christ being resurrected that makes sense right the resurrection yeah (laughs) there it is Um, we got
3: there but it's an
4: oratory doesn't really have a clear like narrative arc uh but they had intended to um stage this um and this is the only thing from the original season that made it into the pivoted season they did like some film other film thing but this is the show that was changed for for film and um, it's exactly what I thought it was going to be, actually. I mean, they had to take it off of the stage and they put it into a smaller venue and they had many cameras, but I felt like I was actually, I watched the whole thing. I felt like I was actually sitting like very close uh, in the audience and watching this opera up close. And I almost felt that I was too close to it. And what I wanted was to be further away and to not have so many camera mm. angles. I wanted yeah. to just see what does it look like? the entire composition because this is interesting. This is now if Marshall had any, or Marshall and Jenna had anything to do with how it was edited. It was interesting to see what they thought was important for you to be looking at hmm. because with opera tellier shows, there's definitely a focus because the, you know, the whoever's is singing is always trying to gain the focus, but there's always other things to your eye can wander to, Oh, that's a beautiful backdrop or Oh, that dancers pose is beautiful, you know, but no, they are making a decision for you. You're gonna look at this aspect of. It. You're gonna look mm. at this hand gesture. You're gonna look at this, you know, beautiful bicep. You know, Douglas Williams is in it, uh, <laughs> and like he's got great arms. Like you suddenly find yourself just, like gazing at Douglas Williams' arms. Release and, the bicep yeah. cut. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, let's just hear a little bit of it. I've, I've been talking, and and Weston's gonna do a really sweet, sweet edit right now, and we're gonna uh, segue right into the opening aria, probably the most famous aria in this. Oratorio Di Seratevi, which is like a triumph aria with lots of coloratura, and you can see everything you need to know about opera atelier in just these forty-five seconds, with the dancing and the gestures and the fantastic orchestra. But another thing that Opera Tellier is known for um, is the male gaze. I want to say the gay male gaze. I'm not. I'm not accusing all <laughs> of gays. I'm Happy not accusing bride. anybody of being gay. But um, Marshall and Jeanette know their audience, and they of all of her specifically. Yes,
3: yes. They <laughs> Some know of these Oliver.
4: shows feel like made exactly for me. <laughs> um, there's always so much male beauty in their shows. And you know, there's like this trend right now uh, for women's leggings to go up the butt crack. This is not new in Apertelie. Actually, Apertelie has been using those. They invented le- the TikTok so,
2: leggings. Yeah, that, yeah I was
3: going to say the TikTok leggings style. The le- <laughs> le- le- leggings do TikTok. That's
4: what they are. They're French. So, um, as you can see here in this, for those of you who are listening to the podcast, you can't. But uh, for those of you who are watching the video, you can see. You know all of these. I think we
1: get the picture, though.
4: Homoerotic yeah, moments where you know we <laughs> are seeing the backside of this dancer, and then like they reveal, you know, this dead Jesus wearing basically a diaper. You know, um, but you can see that little part of the pelvic bone that's just like the perfect part of the male body. You know, that's like <laughs> the little hun- underwear hooks. You know, um, that's <laughs> Opera atelier in a nutshell for you folks, and that's yeah. why I love it. <laughs> <laughs> but they also work with these singers a lot, the same singers year after year, so that these singers know what the aesthetic is and know how to deliver. And I am really, really impressed with, especially, El- so the cast for this show is, we already mentioned Douglas Williams. He plays Lucifer, um, Carla Houtenen as the angel, Colin Ainsworth as St. John the Evangelist. And we're going to hear right now the first lament of Mary Cleophas sung by Alison McCarty. This is Piangete, uh, I think that's what it's called. It's just called piangete. <laughs> <laughs> The Lament of Mary Cleophas, Piangete si Piangete. So, in a nutshell, this is Opera Atelier. They didn't really change much. They just made it a little bit smaller. It's on film, dancing, beautiful gestures, beautiful bums, biceps. And um, yeah, I mean, I just want it to be on my biggest TV and I want to be able to sit or stand away from it. But like looking at this thing so close, I feel doesn't. Do it a great service. I think you just want a little bit distance from it, but um, obviously done with so much detail and so much love.
3: Thank you so much for that. You know, and uh, and and gestures and and TikTok leggings and and butts aside. <laughs> um, you did you did touch on something that I think is part of part of what we're talking about today, which is you know the director of the opera, whether it's on stage or whether it's on film, they have the ultimate controls and knobs when it comes to telling the story. As we shift more into film, we're taking the the ways in which we can point to a very specific part of the action and we're speeding it up because it takes less time to do that in a quick camera angle change than it would to amend a set piece or amend the lighting. So we're really moving into this era of where we can tell these stories and tell these shifts even more quickly because we have this this notion of film. We're moving into now a piece where we go to sort of a, a film adjacent. It's not quite a soundstage, but it's, it's an... At an adjacent location film shoot. George, let's talk about Flight.
1: Exactly. You know, uh, every Christmas, my father-in-law gives me tickets to go see an opera. That wasn't an option this year. So um, I took the money that he gave me and I spent it to go see uh, Seattle Opera's uh, film version of Flight by Jonathan Dove, libretto by April de Angelis. Here's the thing, right? Film is about Narrative having primacy over performance. Ultimately, at the end of the day in film, the performances come second to the story. Opera could be no farther away than that than at all possible, right? Where in opera, it's all about performance, and frankly, the narrative often doesn't really matter at all. So how filmmakers and opera makers are going to wrestle these questions in the months and years to come is important. Uh, Seattle rapper's solution was this: was to take flight, and rather than set it in an actual airport, was to find the Seattle Museum of Flight. I believe the Boeing Corporation mm. is headquartered in Seattle. You are
0: correct, sir. And so,
1: thank you. And so, they took the film and they shot it in this museum. So you have uh, historical planes. You have this. You have placards on the walls, uh, and they did this miraculous job of. Uh, repurposing intentionally this museum in order to house this production of flight. Part of that museum has an air traffic control tower in it and that, at least initially, is where they set the famous controller's aria from the opera. Weston, roll film. Charlie Joint singing the role of the controller there. Brian Stauffenbiel directing. Kyle Siago uh, directing for film and editing. Here's here's the thing. Just because you put it on film doesn't make it a film, doesn't make it a movie, right? Mm. And that is what many opera companies are finding out the hard way, is that you can't just shove it in front of a camera. It's got to have intentionality behind it. That is what this production of Flight, to me, was so moving. Is it a great opera? Absolutely. But the way that they were able to repurpose and reframe it was what was so successful.
3: That is very, very cool. So we've talked about Putting in some visual cues to let people know we're in a new era. We've talked about slapping cameras on and zooming in angles on beautiful TikTok butted leggings to tell a story. We've <laughs> gone to a plot adjacent location and now we're going to move into what we could call Move Over Scorsese. This is a film film. <laughs> Weston, let's move talk over
2: Scorsese. Make way for James Dara.
3: James oh, <laughs> <There he is. laughs> Dara!
2: Obligated mention of James. Keep Dara. those we checks
1: coming, Jimmy. We love. Them.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the the opera I wanted to talk about, uh, I, I kind of cheated a little bit because um, we already talked about this opera fairly extensively. Um, A few months ago uh, when we had uh, Jonathan McCullough and David T. Little on because it's David T. Little's opera Soldier Songs, uh, which Opera Philadelphia did, um, I think, back in October, as I recall. Um, You know, it came out. It came out in January, but they were filming earlier than that. Uh, So uh, what we saw a lot during the pandemic, you saw a lot of archival footage, a lot of re-releases, a lot of the Zoom operas, a lot of people, you know, shooting on black box stages and some proscenium stages. Um, This one was kind of one of the first, at least that I noticed, that really was like, okay, we have the ability to do this opera that is perfect for film specifically. Um, If you've never seen the opera before, uh, it's uh, just one guy, uh, in this case, Jonathan McCullough, uh, he plays multiple parts that kind of bleed into each other, but essentially he's a soldier, sort of suffering from PTSD and being rejected by society, um, uh, and he just goes through the motions of dealing with that. So you see him as a young character um, playing video games and learning how to, uh, how, to how to dehumanize kill people, gun, yeah. how to kill. Yeah. Uh, you see him dealing with the death of a friend. You see him at the very end sort of looking back as a father whose son has uh, died in a war. Um, and so you have a lot of great opportunities for close ups like the opposite of the Baroque opera. Uh, we don't need any TikTok <laughs> leggings to distract us. We can just shove right into Jonathan McCullough's face and it's just as good. Um, and it really is something that is it is film. Uh, the entire thing is shot in the middle of nowhere. In this little tiny uh, trailer, you really feel the claustrophobia of the shots inside the trailer when you're looking outside the trailer and the few moments where he's uh, uh, outside of that little location. He's either in a giant empty warehouse or on the in the middle of like this huge field with no one around. And you really feel the crushing loneliness and the isolation. It's something that you can't really get um, or it's very hard to replicate in live theater
1: well it's hard to replicate because you can't move in the blink of an eye right exactly Exactly. maybe you You can make (laughs) you can make
2: cuts you can make cuts you can uh, so you don't have to like see the the people running around on stage moving things you can um you can really have really put your headphones in put your laptop in your lap and feel that isolation where you don't have you know Three people coughing behind you. You know, it really is something you can't do in live opera, and that is what I think is so exciting about uh, uh, the possibility of post-pandemic film opera: is doing those things you can't do. And uh, th- I will say, Soldier Songs was not written for film. Um, there are there are certain points where. Uh, it's, it's obvious that there was a, there's like a orchestral interlude, for example, um, that was meant to fill time for a set change, which is now no longer necessary. And you have to think about that, but Everything else really, really works, and it takes inspiration not just from like you know film, but also music videos, which I find very exciting because we've been filming you know music for a really long time in We're a really popular way. We're the
0: generation.
2: We are the, uh, I'm not, but uh, maybe uh, maybe all you either. old folks are. <laughs> I am. I'm absolutely. Uh, Oliver is the uh, the Victrola generation, um, <laughs> but uh, for you uh, Gen Xers out there. Uh, I, I want to play. Uh, you'll you'll see above me uh, right now. Um, one of my favorite scenes sing- scenes in the film is uh, 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 the point where he's singing about killing and he's and he's playing with his little uh, controller, um, and uh, the uh, the trailers are swinging back and forth. People are clearly pushing on it, and there's there's like smoky lights going around, like spotlights spinning. It real and it and it's at a moment in the score where. It's the score is at its most heavy metal, hard rockish sort of feel, and it really, really, really works. It, it, it's it's a it, it's a sort of a whole art, a, a whole art form that opera uh, has not really stolen from, but really should because music videos have been around for a long time now, and they really have something to offer. Um, and even though it has those moments and those vignettes in it, it can still come down and be serious and, and what you more expect out of an opera, too. I think I'll close my little segment here uh, with uh, just a, a, a portion of the opera where uh, Jonathan McCullough is singing as a father whose son has died in the war, uh, lamenting his death. And it it feels like just a straight up just indie film. Like if I saw this and there was no music, I'd be like, "Oh, I know this. I I watch this all the time." You know, uh, he's got the you know the artsy shot of him like burning a photograph on a grill, and the smoke is coming up. And may I just say, the composition of all the shots is immaculate. The rule of thirds is at play. You know, none (laughs) of this uh, uh, state a live theater blocking. It's all thought about for the camera. Uh, and it really just proves how emotional, emotional and affecting and effective uh, something like this can be for, you know, a, 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 an opera company with a decent budget.
0: Nor, nor uniforms,
4: not folded flags, nor
3: That is... Fascinating. And, you know, you, you mentioned the notion of the music video, which actually gets back to the, you know, original Washington Post article and some of the things that, uh, Broder was talking about, how this is this nice hybrid between this sort of cultural thing that the, you know, sort of youngish adults of now know and then moving Mm -hmm. it into this more traditional art form. Uh, I'm gonna go on a quick little run. Join me, won't you? Uh, I was thinking about (laughs) MTV and music television. Uh, it turns 40 this year, later this year. Uh, and the very first video that ever came on MTV, music television, Was video killed the radio star? Yes, it was. Is this now a moment where music opera videos are going to kill the traditional opera star? I don't think so. I don't think so. But what I do think is that this necessity, this mother of invention of the pandemic did bring us to this... New era that has this really cool way for us to get opera into eyeballs and earballs to these new audiences, <laughs> or at the very least, preserve them in a way that we have not yet done before. So, as we're moving into, you know, we've We've put things on stage, we've shifted camera angles, we've really turned them into actual, what could almost be a feature film, but they're also documenting this really, really beautiful music. So when we look at the things that are next, we're also gonna talk about some of the things that are coming out of Boston Lyric Opera, this binge-worthy Netflix-style opera. Uh, who wants to tell me a little bit about Desert Inn?
2: I can mention a couple things. Uh, the Desert Inn is is really interesting to me to me. Because one thing that uh, we mentioned when we were sort of discussing the episode um, is that, you know, opera was not, you know, operas that are not written for this format can be very long. And while you might go into a theater and feel the energy of the people around you and really taking in that that live energy, if you're in standing room, you're like, oh, yeah, I can, I can do this Wagner opera for five hours. Not a problem. But once you're sitting in a room with a laptop and you're reaching hour two, it starts to kind of, you know it it starts to you start to get those distractions you know your your cat might Poop in the corner. you Your uh, 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 that was a callback. If I edited this out, Ashley's cat pooped in the corner. <laughs> at the of this episode, um, it, but like the, there are these distractions that you have at home that you don't necessarily have. So one of the cool things right. about Desert Inn,
4: which we is haven't that, explained what it is yet. It's oh a, yeah, we should say yeah, it's, it's it, a mini series like webisode version of opera. Uh, yeah. I don't know what the plot is. I haven't seen it yet, but it is on a subscription basis. You have to pay for it. And it's produced by Boston Lyric Opera, and it's been getting rave reviews. It's already a, a few of the episodes, or maybe all of it has been dropped already. Yep. And it's really allowing for uh, the co creator and director, James Dara, to shine. It, James <laughs> Dara! James, yeah.
1: Keep those checks coming, Jimmy. Um,
4: but, you know, it also is allowing for new compositional voices and a new mm-hmm. type mm-hmm. of opera star, and which I think is what Asha is getting at here is that. You know, we uh, have gone through this horrible year together, and we have had a chance to like really examine some of the really stupid things about our business, uh, financial things and sexism things and racism things, and we want to almost burn it all down and start over. Well, it already has been starting, you know, The, the opera on film is making a space for composers and for artists who might not have a chance to have their works performed mm-hmm. on the real stage because we know currently the audiences who pay for these things aren't really putting their money in those things. But if companies can take all that you know diversity money that they're trying to get from their donors, like we want to invest in this part of our of our company, if they could put it towards this, maybe we will see those things get funded and create this new version hybrid version of our art I'm the probably the most conservative person on this panel so I'm not there yet I'm I want those people to do well I love James Dare I love Jonathan McCall I love all these you know creative people but I love the sound of the human voice in a room there is a vibration that you get from the instruments and from the voices that go into your body and you feel those things and sometimes you can get a Sort of that feeling from video, from recordings, it approximates it. But to actually right. be in the same room with those noises, it is an experience. And it's an experience that gets us hooked into this art form. Well, and that, uh, as,
1: as you say, Oliver, this, this is why, to your point, Ashley, that we're not going to lose live performance, right? Like we have as a... As a fan base, we have fetishized the unamplified human voice to such a point that we're never going to let go of it, nor are we going to ever really <laughs> lose this aspect of the art form in film, right? Look, the pandemic has forced the gatekeepers of opera to release their death grip on this art form and allow it to finally develop into related mediums to film and TV that have been the center of pop culture for so long that have widened the reach of this art for, for so long and have broken down so many different barriers there's absolutely no way that it will ever fade into uh, the closing the uh.
2: <laughs> Fade into wherever that thought went at the end of that sentence, George. <laughs>
1: Leave I
3: was it really in. with you. Leave I it was, in. I was with you. I was ready to drop my mic, but it's expensive. <laughs> so just think of me as metaphorically dropping my mic for you, George, right here.
1: All right. Uh, a Little bit of sports. Euro 2020 getting underway later this week. It's been, well, more than four years since the last European soccer championships. Hey, look, get ready to see Hooligan George when England takes to the pitch. I will say to their credit, the England team in a warm up match against Romania all took a collective knee. And skipper Gareth Southgate, who famously missed that penalty against Germany in Euro 1996, we can all remember it still, uh, said, Look, I was three. You know what? Is that, look, this is what my team's going to do. We're going to take a knee. I want to see the curtain go up on the next live performance at the Met. Nothing from the orchestra. The curtain goes up. Everybody on that stage is taking a knee. And we just look at that for 30 seconds, and then we get a downbeat, and off we go. Ashley Floyd Mayweather, oh, yes, he was fighting this weekend.
3: I mean, if that's what we want to call it. Uh, So, yes. (laughs) Yes. Floyd Mayweather and Logan Paul were allegedly in a boxing match, the one and only time you're going to hear me frickin' report on boxing. Uh, the match <laughs> ended in a draw. Uh, according to Sports Illustrated Twitter, Floyd Mayweather says it's an honor. Logan Paul was hyped after surviving eight rounds. Okay, here's the thing. This is sad, and why would anybody care about a YouTube oaf who is trying to hit at a 44-year-old champion? Why did this happen? This was an exhibition match, but, like, there's exhibition matches, and then there's this horse pucky, whatever this was. I don't feel any sympathy for any of you that paid... Per view, get yourself a different hobby. This would be like if Chichilia Bartoli willingly signed on to a pay-per-view sing-off with Dua Lipa. Why? Why would we do this to ourselves? I'd probably
0: watch it. Would du- <laughs> would Dua Lipa also wear a holographic Charizard around her neck as a good luck charm?
3: <laughs> She'd probably wear a mini skirt. First of all, I'm a big fan of Dua Lipa, but I would not pay to see Chichilia and do a riff off. That doesn't make any sense to me.
1: Two minute drill. It should have been 10 minutes ago.
3: (laughs) This just in... The Two Minute
0: Drill. All
1: right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in opera land this week.
0: Douglas Kearney, librettist of such operas as Sweet Land and Comet Slash has been named the inaugural recipient of a prize from Opera America, specifically recognizing the work of opera librettists. The $7,000 Career Development Award was conceived and funded by acclaimed librettist, lyricist, and friend of the show, Mark Campbell.
3: What's up, Doc? That's what we'll ask Christine Opelias one day when she responds to our quest to come on the show. That's because the soprano was awarded an honorary doctorate from the Cyprus Academy of Music, in addition to becoming the first ever honorary member of the Athens Philharmonic.
1: The Nuremberg Foundation's 2021 International Vocal Competition has been won by Erin Wagner, mezzo-soprano from El Paso, Texas. She's due to graduate from Juilliard this month. She wins 25 grand, two New York concerts, That jury chaired by Don Upshaw.
4: Soprano Audrey Ann Southard has been charged with hitting a police officer with a flagpole during the January 6th riots at the U.S. Capitol. Southard, who performed at Carnegie Hall over seven years ago, told NBC News, Thank you for contacting me. Don't ever do it again when asked for a comment. Shondos Records'
2: recording of Thais, starring the late Aaron Wall with the Toronto Symphony Orchestra led by Sir Andrew Davis, has won Canada's Juno Award for Classical Album of the Year in the Vocal or Choral category. Thais beat out Karina Galvan's recital disc of 18th century arias from the Russian court, and La Passione, a recent album by friend of the show Barbara Hannigan. Yellow flag on the all-Canadian nominees, but we'll allow it.
3: In trade news, Constantine Orbellian has been named the new music director and principal conductor of the New York City Opera. I am thrilled to accept the position. It is a great opportunity to help bring this historic, culturally significant musical institution back to life after a challenging time of COVID closures, said Orbellian, who is slated to conduct his first production in August.
1: Hey Constantine. pro tip, get a month-to-month lease. This week's yellow cards!
3: Germany! The Stotts Theatre Castle has announced that it will reopen its doors to live audiences in July.
0: Wales. Welsh National Opera is set to return to the stage with a production of Will Todd's Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. The outdoor showcase is scheduled to take place later this month.
2: This week's Red Cards. Austria. The Bregenz Festival has received assurances that it can perform to full attendance this summer. So far, 115,000 tickets have been sold and 65,000 more reserved, with demand running well ahead of non-pandemic years for this lakeside festival.
1: Germany, the Deutsches Nationaltheater, has announced the cancellation of the remainder of its regular 2020-21 season. That would probably be about five days.
4: On the disabled list, the Royal Opera House has announced baritone Christopher Maltman has withdrawn from performances of Don Giovanni due to ongoing quarantine regulations that conflict with performances in Rome and Salzburg. The Teatro San Carlo di Napoli has announced a cast change for its upcoming
0: Carmen. Due to a sudden illness, Jean-Francois Borat has been forced to cancel and Brian Jade will
2: take over the role of Don José. Exit stage right, the Metropolitan Opera Chorus is mourning the loss of Danrell Williams. In a statement, the chorus said the bass was a dear colleague and brother and by all accounts is one of the happiest most generous caring and funniest members of our family
3: composer and conductor Cristóbal Hofter has passed away at 91 in Spain a member of the so-called Generación del 51 he led the creation of contemporary classic Spanish music
4: and on this day June 7th in 1727 sopranos Francesca Cuzzoni and Faustina Bordoni created a public scandal culminating in a physical altercation during a performance of Ostianate. In 1827, the first performance of Carlo Kocha's Mary Stuart, Queen of Scotland, took place in London. In 1872 was the birth of Russian tenor Leonid Sobinov. Hungarian-born American conductor and composer George Zell was born this day in 1897. In 1903 was the birth of English soprano Margaret Ritchie. In 1907, the birth of Italian tenor Mario Filipeski. In 1908, it was the birth of Italian soprano Margherita Carosio, or Carosio, and in 1933, the first performance of Kurt Weill and Bertolt Brecht's The Seven Deadly Sins in Paris. 1945 saw the first performance of Benjamin Britten's opera Peter Grimes in London and happy birthday, June 7th, to French tenor Roberto Alagna.
1: And that is your two minute drill.
0: For our podcast friends, you just heard Margarita Corozio, who was one of the leading bel canto sopranos of the early 20th century, singing Elvira's Mad Scene from Ippuritani. Uh, Margar- Margarita Corozio was the singer who, in 1949, fell ill uh, doing this exact role, and Maria Callas had to learn it in five days to replace <sighs> her while she was also singing Brunhilda. <laughs> <laughs> no, nope.
3: that's
1: <laughs> almost as... Is- Crazy as there not being more opera people at the insurrection.
3: <laughs> okay. Can I be honest and say I'm a little bit surprised that we haven't heard about more opera one-sixers besides our <laughs> new friend, Audrey?
0: There's probably the, more than one donor.
3: The Venn uh. diagram of delusion, I mean, it, it, it exists. Okay, y'all, you know I Googled this. Okay, so, <laughs> so I definitely looked at her LinkedIn page. I definitely looked at the nine cases against her on the U.S. Department of Justice website. Uh, but what I really looked at was her company's Facebook page. Uh, the most recent video there irony included, is from April 9th. And it's a video of someone that I'm almost certain is her singing Poor Pitiful Me by Linda Ronstadt.
2: I'd <laughs> be very ironic if that's the case.
3: And uh, technically, you can still sign up for lessons. I mean, <laughs> i am you can, right from the business's Facebook page. I just, I, I love that, like, we've been hearing about, you know, a couple of different people you know, these these folks that were there at the insurrection. And they, they've often talked about their locations, like Arkansas Man or West Virginia Man or, or Texas Grandpa or whatever. And then the one person that is from our field, they mention her job. And they're like, there was an opera singer at one So, yeah. Go us. Go us.
2: Hopefully not
4: one of our <laughs> listeners.
1: <laughs> Oliver, how about the uh, opera singers and the Juno Awards?
4: Well, that's a really hard question. Left turn there. Uh, I, think, <laughs> I think that the Juno Awards um, were trying to posthumously honor Aaron Wall. Uh, not that the Thais recording isn't probably great, but uh, I think, I mean, Barbara Hannigan, if you can give an award to Barbara Hannigan, why not give it to Barbara Hannigan? Maybe it's, a, maybe it's an award for
0: all of the Thais recordings that came before it that were not so great. <laughs> but at chills. least the Junos
4: got the you know, got the sentiment of it right, unlike the Oscars, which awarded a non-present Anthony Hopkins when it should have gone to Riz Ahmed. <laughs> but anyway, I hear that The Father's really good. I don't know. I haven't seen it yet. I'm not going to pay to sit in my apartment and watch a movie, you know?
1: Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. uh, based on what we've just been talking about? Before. No, like, let it be on
4: a streaming service. Make it more accessible. Make it like I already paid 15 bucks for that service and 15 bucks for that service, 15 bucks for that service. Like I don't need to spend another 30 bucks to watch something. Put it on Netflix for Oliver.
1: <laughs> well, they're spending money on the sunny shores of what is it? Lake Bragen's, right?
2: Oh yeah. Oh, uh, first of all, if you've never heard of the Brigands festival before, it's literally on the lake. Like I remember the uh, uh, the first time I encountered it, they were doing, um, oh gosh, the Verismo opera that takes place during the French revolution and Andre uh, yeah, thank you. And uh, uh, the entire set was a giant, like 35, 40 foot high uh, sculpture of Mara in the bathtub. And the bathtub is the lake. And I just, mm, I love that. So I was very interested and excited to see that the demand was so high. Uh, and I wonder how much of that will be, well, if we'll be seeing any more of that, if people will be like, oh, thank God, Life Theater's coming back. Everyone wants to be there everyone wants to see something or if this is just a one-off because the lake is so enticing and everyone's been cooped up indoors I mean, for
0: too long. It's partially the lake, but also the Vienna state opera does like 200 performances a year and they sell in like the high nineties of capacity. Yeah. So this is a people who is, the starved.
4: Can I just say that while we were going through all of this today, I think yellow card, red card has to be retired.
1: <gasps> mm
3: we're getting controversial. It. I think we're let it, please let
4: it be
2: so.
3: <laughs> That's close. all we're
2: going to say. Yeah. <laughs> we My can retire it. We just don't want it to come back.
1: <laughs> My beginning goes. All right, follow me closely here for our last story. So, Chick Hearn, legendary LA Lakers announcer coined the phrase garbage time this is it the last two minutes of that blowout football game or basketball game and you know the, players the last are just two like, minutes
2: of any podcast about opera
1: when they're just <laughs> passing the ball around and there's clearly like one team has lost and it's all over new york city opera is playing on garbage time right now there is clearly no way this company is coming back so for them to be playing ball and pretending that they're going to do opera is utterly irresponsible it's garbage time
0: (laughs) (laughs) hope springs eternal is all i can say like i just want them to come back so badly oh god me too. i get my hopes up every time that it's gonna work and maybe
3: this will be the
1: one you
3: forget about our friend in the bible his name was lazarus he came back from the dead why not Nico?
1: all right let's wrap this show up
3: good call bad call on Opera Box Score.
1: Wow, great to have the family back together again on Opera Box Score, firing on all cylinders. The OBS taking you to the movies. Oliver Camacho, good call, bad call. What do you got?
4: Um well I have advanced warning, so I guess it's a good call that uh, Anita rochville new album, Elegy, comes out in July. I remember seeing actually I just I was just scrolling through Facebook while you guys were talking. I just remember seeing this picture. <laughs> that's her that's the new <laughs> album cover, so That's a very glamorous way to share that with you all. Uh, But my other good call is for our friend Zachary James, uh, who, uh, along with many colleagues, put together uh, an informative video for teenagers on Opera America's Opera Teens program called What is Opera? And the testimonials on this video include friends of the show anthony roth costanzo ian bell jake heggie lydia yonkovskaya karim Suleiman, sarah williams lucha lucas and many many other people it's a delight it's long-ish but it's really delightful to see all those people talk about opera and why they love it
1: matt cummings
0: Speaking of friend of the show, Lucia Lucas, she is the subject of a profile in this month's issue of Opera News, uh, where she talks about her experience as a transge- transgender singer in the opera world and her upcoming role in the 2023 premiere of Tobias Picker and Aria Lev Stolman's new adaptation of The Danish Girl. It's a really cool piece, and we are
1: going to post a link to it on our website. Weston, you have so much editing to do on this episode. We're going to yes. go early. Ashley Hardgrave.
3: Well, uh, bad call to my cat who interrupted our filming and threw me off my game. But otherwise, good call to the geniuses at HBO who created the magic that is mayor of Easttown. It is prestige television at its finest. I've also subtitled the show, Why Is Everybody So Mean to Kate Winslet. The point is, the show is incredible. If you have access to HBO, I encourage you to start watching it. And then DM me so we can talk about it. I cannot discuss it with enough people. Mayor of Town. I don't
1: know if I have a good call or a bad call. It's a bad call because I hate having opera box score in my dreams. But let me (laughs) say something to you, opera box score listeners. The good call was that my dream last night was about Yannick Nizé-Séguin. And he and I spent the entire day together. I sort of followed him around like a day in the life. And we were going to turn that into like a multi-part OBS show. That was the dream. Wow. (laughs) That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. He's at normwaddell.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Twitter, Instagram, at Opera Box Score. Deep in that bench of listeners, like and share our social media posts. Email us your hot takes, gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast, Stitcher, favorite the show on Apple Podcasts. Views and opinions expressed on Opera Box Score are solely those of the show's creative team. Any rebroadcast, reproduction, or other use of the accounts of this show without the express written consent of Opera Box Score is Rolam! Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho, audio and video editors, Weston Williams. For your co-hosts, Matt Cummings, Ashley Hardgrave, I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera during garbage time. We're back with an all-new show next week. Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more outtakes. Join us.